As I said in episode 900, my update about dropping this podcast back to one a week for a while for health reasons, I'm going to be sharing brand new episodes only on Mondays for a while. I'm going to use my usual Wednesday and Friday slots to reshare some excellent older episodes. What follows is one of those interviews. I just don't think banning or deplatforming this stuff is going to make it go away unless your rules are like you can only talk about puppies and kittens and unicorns. and But even that could get politicized because we've seen that get politicized too. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Katie Harbath, who spent a full decade at Facebook dealing with politics, mostly as their director of public policy. After leaving in the spring of 2021, she continues to work at the intersection of technology and democracy, having started her own firm called Anchor Change and becoming a fellow at several organizations, including the Bipartisan Policy Center and Democracy Works. Katie came up through Republican digital politics. Her last job there was at the National Republican Senatorial Campaign Committee, where she was chief digital strategist. So we had a lot to talk about including just how dramatically and rapidly politics changed on Facebook and other social media platforms, contributing greatly to the world of polarization and misinformation we struggle with today, and what she and her team at Facebook's management did to deal with these problems. Katie's still wrestling with a lot of the issues, and it's a good conversation, well worth your listen. So, after word from our sponsor, my interview with Katie Harbath, now of Anchor Change. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Katie, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Hi, my name's Katie Harbath. I'm currently founder and CEO of a company I started called Anchor Change. Before that, I spent 10 years as, at Facebook as a public policy director in the DC office where I built the teams that work with politicians and governments on how to use the platform, as well as coordinated the company's elections work all across the globe. Well, there's a lot there and there was a lot before that I have some knowledge of. Let me just ask you some some questions, maybe starting a little bit more at the beginning. Katie, where'd you grow up? I'm from Green Bay, Wisconsin. Probably a Packers fan. If there's a owner, actually. Owned, you're an owner because of a publicly owned team there, yes. Yes, I yeah. am a proud owner of the Green Bay Packers. My family is all still back there. And in fact, I'm heading there tomorrow for a week to go see the fall colors and hang out with them. Were they a political family? We weren't a political family. I remember growing up, I mean, they voted, of course. And I remember times asking my mother who she voted for. And she always said that that was her business, not mine. And it wasn't until I actually, I didn't really get involved in politics until I was in college. And I worked on the student newspaper. I wanted to be a journalist. And I met a lot of folks that were working in politics um, around that. And I got the bug um, back during Norm Coleman's 2002 Senate race. I remember going home one time and my grandfather asking me if I was a Republican or a Democrat. And my dad goes, she better darn well be a Republican if she's my daughter. And that was the first time I ever actually knew what his politics was. Wow. Uh, it was a lot more clear in my household than a little different. If someone said to me that they went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison and were on the student newspaper. I wouldn't have guessed that they were headed towards Republican politics. What do you think sent you in that direction? 
There were a couple things. So first, UW-Madison's unique in that it actually has two student newspapers. There's the Badger Herald and the Daily Cardinal. And the Herald is one that was created in 1969 um, by a group of conservative students in response to the Vietnam protests. And so that was already sort of a natural spot for folks who are a little bit more center-right or right-leaning uh, to go to. And then um, for me, it was actually after 9-11. Um, after 9-11, I was like, I really need to kind of figure out, like, am I a Democrat? Am I a Republican? I voted for Gore in 2000 because that's what everybody else was doing. And when I really looked at, you know, the issues and things, and I also, watching President Bush and sort of his joint speech to Congress, I realized that I was leaning a lot more in that direction. And then... Um, started having a lot more influences in college along those lines. So tell me about the the launch of your career, which I know takes you through some Republican campaigns and the RNC. And the, tell me about how that gets going and some of the things you learned along the way. Yeah. So I ended up adding political science on to my major at Madison. And my senior year, I was interning for the Wisconsin State Republican Party. And after volunteering on the Coleman race, because some friends were there, we just, my friends and I decided we wanted to move to D.C. And everyone said if you wanted a job in D.C., you just needed to move out there and start interviewing. And so in the summer of 2003, after I graduated, um, a friend and I, we packed up our cars and moved out here. The state party had given my resume to the national party. And I started pounding the pavement here. I worked at the Macy's perfume counter for a few weeks. So I started at the RNC just answering the phones and the communications department. And as I was coming into the RNC, the guys who were building the website and doing what was then called the e-campaign work were moving to the President Bush's reelect. And I wrote this long memo to my boss of all this stuff I thought we should do on the internet. And he was like, great, it's yours, but we don't have any money. <laughs> so... That was how I started learning. You know, I had had a blog in college and I had done a little bit of digital stuff, but that's where I really started to cut my teeth, if you will, on email marketing, uh, a little bit of online fundraising, a lot of web video. And then I just kept building upon that. Who were the people that you worked with uh, in those days? Because I had a couple, I had Michael Turk and I had Patrick Ruffini. Uh, on the show along the way. I can't remember exactly what years they were working. So Michael Turk and Patrick Graffini and Mindy Finn were all over on the president's campaign. I was, during the 04 reelect, when I was at the RNC, it was more folks like uh, Serenity Hanley and Brian Lyle. Jim Dyke was the communications director and Ed Gillespie was the RNC chairman at the time. And then after the election, uh, Turk and Rafini and Finn, Mindy came over to the RNC and we all started to work together there. Got it. Um, and that's, boy, it's a different era in the internet and, and certainly in social media and things like that. When you think about campaigning and elections and the internet, what do you think are the biggest changes from, from what you could do then to what you do now? I've actually been thinking about this a ton as I've been reflecting on the last 18 years of, of my career. And I really see, you know, that that time period of the early 2000s through really, I would say about 2015 is sort of the optimistic time period that we all had. We thought the internet would be the great equalizer. You know, the Arab Spring had happened. Uh, President Obama's both 08 and 12 campaigns we just had a lot of optimism and kind of some blinders on to, you know, all the ways that this stuff could potentially be misused. And then after some events in 2016, not only the U.S. presidential election, but Brexit and the Philippines election overseas, we started moving into this reckoning phase where we really started to realize all the ways that the things that we thought were going to be really great tools were also being weaponized as well and needing to really catch up on what it meant to be protecting the integrity of elections online. And that's where a lot of my work shifted and focused. I had to learn really quickly about cybersecurity and threat intelligence, as well as um, we created political and issue ad transparency and how to fight mis and disinformation. Uh, that has really shifted the work. There was also, it went sort of, um, 
a little bit, it felt overnight, but it wasn't um, in terms of there being no question that companies or people would be using data and helping campaigns in terms of running advertising and using these platforms in order to uh, campaign. And after 2016, that and especially into 2018, at least at Facebook, that came under a ton of scrutiny. And we almost, you know, ended up ending my team that I had built around supporting them. But instead, we ended up putting a lot more guardrails in trying to make sure that we were as transparent as possible around the work that we were doing. So I want to rewind a little bit in your story since you covered a lot of ground. You established yourself as a pioneer in Republican digital strategy, right, over time. At the RNC, you went later to the the National Republican Senatorial Committee to run that uh, part of the thing. Tell me a little bit about that stint at the Senate Committee and what you're doing then and what you're learning. Yeah. So I moved over to the Senatorial Committee back in 2009 um, to be their chief digital strategist. And uh, it was just a fancier title for the same thing around helping to think about digital strategy with all the different Senate races. What was really interesting there were there were sort of two phenomenon that were really growing during that period of time. One was the rise of mobile. Um, I had a graph and I wrote something for tech president after that election that just showed over the course of a year how much use of mobile had exploded because of the iPhone coming out. That was the first time campaign or cycle that I'd really used Facebook ads. We used Facebook ads and Google ads quite a bit, but um, whether it was Scott Brown's uh, re-election or um, you know the Tea Party movement was just coming on board then. There was the Health Care Act um, fight. And so it was used quite a bit for online fundraising as well. How do you land at Facebook? So you've been sort of a prominent person in Republican politics on the digital side. How do you land over there to begin, you know, working in the political stuff for that company? So Facebook had hired a gentleman who came from Democratic politics. His name was Adam Con- is Adam Connor. <laughs> He's still around. Um, Adam Connor um, back in two thousand late two thousand seven, early two thousand eight, and so I had gotten to know him through just the digital circles in politics, whether D and R are pretty small and they sort of intersect a bit to, um, you know, through conferences and things of that nature. And so I had been working with Adam on the Senate races that I was working with. And after the election, he actually approached me about potentially joining the company because they knew that they were going to have a lot of Republicans running in 2012 and President Obama would be running for reelect. And so they wanted to bring a Republican on who those campaigns would know and trust. What was it like moving out of the world of politics into the world of a, you know, a giant social media enterprise? It wasn't that giant at the time. It was, um, you know, I was employee number eight in the DC office. I mean, it was big, but we hadn't even hit, we hit a billion people a year after I joined. So I guess, I guess so. That's relatively sizable in reach, but yes, it is not where it is now. Not where it is now. The employee base was still very small. So the user base was, was quite big, but the employee, the employee, uh, was, was smaller, but it was a definite change. And I was, I was, grateful for it because um, rather than needing to convince one or a few candidates to do something online, I felt like now I had the whole plethora of Republican candidates and elected officials in front of me to be able to talk to you about using Facebook. And if I could even just get a few of them to to start doing that, um, it would be a win. You said that you had the responsibility of building a team. What, what was the team the team is responsible for that interface between politicians and the company or beyond that? That came after 2012. So in 2012, I was throughout that election, I was only focused on providing support to Republican candidates. And what that meant was if they had questions on how to use the site, the best types of content that would get the most engagement, if they were having problems of any sort, anything like that, like I'm their point person to come to and, and ask about that. After 2012, I we it's it's kind of difficult to say now, but we wanted 2016 to be known as the Facebook election because 2012 was very focused on Google. And in YouTube. some ways it was. It was um, <laughs> just not in the way that we wanted it to be. Um, but, you know, and we were starting to get after President Obama's 2012 win, a lot of candidates and political parties around the world were like, I want to do that. 
how do we do what the president did? And we were getting questions about that. And I wanted to get international experience. And so I pitched to my boss and that I thought we should start building out an international team uh, to do that. And in May of 2013, they said, yes, go do that. Build out teams around the world to work with these politicians and political parties. But let's also start thinking about what does it mean for a social media platform to be um, used in an election? And at that time, it was sort of like, let's show them reminders when it's election day and remind them to vote. Let's do like live stream interviews with news orgs and reporters. And then let's live stream debates. Let's try to get data on what the conversation is on the platform about the candidates. That's where it was really focused. It kind of had a civic focus at the time, a healthy platform for campaigning in perhaps. That was the goal, was a healthy platform for for campaigning and trying to help uh, make people more informed voters and trying to find ways to better include citizens in the process. I think it's impossible to talk about 2016 without talking about Trump and Facebook. Tell me what you as a, you know, as a Republican, but now as an employee of Facebook, how did you see that the rise, his rise to the Republican primaries, right? There were a ton of candidates. Uh, his strategy was unusual compared to the the Jebs of the world. How did you view it personally? So it's a couple of things. I mean, when I started building out the team in 13, I moved into a very bipartisan role. I was managing both D's and R's. We also had quite a few guardrails that we had in place from always from the very beginning, at least from when I was there around making sure we were offering the same thing to all the candidates, that everybody was getting the same opportunity, getting the same information, having access to the same tools. Honestly, like we had been working with a ton of the candidates before Trump even announced in what was it, June of 2015. And at first we actually had to transition him from he was being supported through the entertainment team team because of his apprentice and all of that work. And so we actually had to shift him into our team because we needed to make sure that we were putting the right guardrails into place now that he was a candidate running for office. And, you know, in many ways, his team was sometimes some of the first that were willing to try new products. Like Facebook Live came online in August 2015, that first debate. And the Trump campaign was actually the first presidential campaign to use it. And all they did was live stream him getting off the helicopter in Cleveland. But they were game to try it. And 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 they did that in a way that it was taking a lot more convincing for the other campaigns. They were known for using a lot of the, the Facebook data. Cambridge Analytica? Yes. Yes. And which was Facebook data. And then also for using, relying a lot more on internal Facebook team than say the Clinton campaign did, maybe because of deficits in their own operation. At least that's what's come to me. How did you see the way the Trump campaign used the resources of Facebook compared to the Democrats? So there's a couple of different things there. One was that, um, yeah, the Dems had a lot more people on their their internal team. They they very much felt that they knew what they were doing and that they could handle it. And it was sort of a, we'll call you when we have problems, but we've got this, we've got this handled type of thing. The Trump team, not just with Facebook, but a lot of the other platforms was like, um, you guys are the experts, like, you know, tell us what you think that we should be doing or how we should be using your, your tools, they were making the decisions on like data around audiences and in different stuff of that nature. But like, what's the best way to optimize your tools? They were sort of like, you're the experts, like give us advice on doing that. We'll add our political expertise on top. The Cambridge Analytica stuff, depending upon, you know, if you talk to Parscale and people on the Republican side, they didn't use that data that much. Um, in fact, they didn't find it that helpful compared to the RNC data. Um, I don't know if we'll ever know the full scope of the truth on that and how effective all of that was or or wasn't. But they, um, you know, very similar to how President Obama kind of was using the targeted sharing stuff back in 2012 and trying to, you know, better connect people to their friends. You saw the the, the Trump team trying to think about different ways of being to, able to do that. But the biggest thing that I actually saw... There was a moment in the third debate, the third general election debate, where 
President Trump's team was live streaming. They were doing their own programming on Facebook um, to bracket the debates. So they were doing stuff before the debate. And then they actually bought the debate feed. And they showed the debate on their own Facebook page. And then they did their own programming after. And I was looking at the numbers at that. And there were more people watching that live stream than people watching the ABC live stream. And we were linking to that from the homepage. And there was a moment there was a moment there when that happened where I was like, he might win. Like there's something happening here. You felt that way, Katie, because he had so many people following him that you thought, wow, people are really interested or because you thought they are strategically uh, making smarter moves. What was the source of that feeling? The source of the feeling was the numbers, the active numbers of people who are watching it. You know, it's not a passive. I'm a fan on your Facebook page. It's a, I'm actually watching this live on, on your page that was, was doing it. And then I thought, you know, as part of that, it was sort of the strategic of like, why am I going to send my supporters to another page to watch the debate? Why don't I just do it all on mine? And they were fundraising constantly throughout it. We all know he has a knack for, for seeking attention successfully in a way that we is probably unmatched in our political lifetimes. What kind of policy issues did that bring to the fore for you before he gets elected, when he gets elected, and when he governs? That's quite the arc of a story that isn't quite finished yet. But, you know, December 2015 was the, was the first moment where he had put up a post about wanting to ban all Muslims potentially from entering the United States which violated Facebook's community standards. Now, and I was on vacation then when that happened, actually scuba diving. And so I wasn't in the rooms making the final decisions on that. But that was where Facebook decided that because the newsworthiness policy didn't officially exist yet, that didn't come till 2016. But it was sort of the precursor to the company deciding to have a policy like that because something was in their mind important to the the conversation. Um, I think it's also important for people to, to remember too, at that period of time, the thought of removing content, let alone removing a presidential candidate from the platform was just completely unprecedented across any sort of these platforms. I think there's a lot of work to do to look in hindsight and whether or not that was right or not, but it was a very different time. Do you note that you were on vacation and not making that decision because you think you might have made a different call? You're disassociating yourself from that a little bit. I am disassociating myself, but more because um, I I, I think I would have made the same call. I, I have a really strong First Amendment belief, and I'm still kind of grappling with it in all honesty, but that I think people deserve to have a right to see what those who want to represent them what they're saying. Now, I think I'm much more open and and I would love to have at the time to have had a lot more levers in place in terms of, um, can you reduce the reach? You know, the labels, a lot of things that ended up getting built for 2020 didn't exist. Um, I, I more did that to sort of also say though, too, that like sometimes publicly these decisions get played that it's like one person or just the public policy team who's making these calls. And it really is a much bigger team across a a wide swath of Facebook. And when it comes to something like a presidential candidate, that's going all the way up to Mark and others in terms of making some of those decisions. So that, that was sort of why I wanted to, to say that. And I should have added the more context into it of why I said I was on vacation. When I've talked to other people at Facebook, they've been loath to be public about their opinions, uh, maybe because of things that they've signed or just loyalty to the company. How do you see uh, your freedom right now to talk about what happened during those times? And how do you decide what the scope is of things that you'll talk about? I think that I can bring a different perspective to the debate, having worked inside the company and also coming from a bit more of a center-right perspective. I think a lot of these issues are ones that are not just about Facebook, but are really about how we want to handle these things on the internet as a whole. And I hope and think that I have something to contribute to that conversation of thinking about the, the thought leadership and the way forward. I also want to be honest about the fact that I'm currently trying to rethink my assumptions. 
and really trying to reflect and it's not all going to happen overnight. Um, but it's something that, so I think about, you know, I'm not going to talk about who is in what meeting, who made what decision, you know, there's, there's NDA rules I have around, um, what I can say around Facebook, but a lot of this stuff is public too. And so, I think it's worthwhile to try to add my voice as we continue to debate these things and try to see if we can make sure we get to, you know, whether it's smart regulations, smart guardrails, we're asking smarter questions. What other policy issues were tested? You mentioned one. Uh, I'm sure that there were a raft of them as time went by. Yeah, I mean, specifically with the president's page, you know, a lot of it was all very content related in that that continued to ratchet up and, and escalate, you know, after he got into office. And then as you went into the 2020 election, where, uh, again, all the companies were trying to kind of think through, how do you try to help make sure people understand the actual, you know, the, what the voting process is going to look like, the different ways they can vote, try to provide more context where leaders might be misleading them in terms of what the actual results are and things of that nature. I'm not, you know, I think the jury's still out in terms of whether or not those were successful or not. Then there was a lot on political and issue advertising and making that transparent. I spent a lot of time building those products on everything from even defining what a political or issue ad is. That's much harder than what you think it is. And then when you're thinking about that, you're both trying to prevent foreign interference, but also and try to catch the unknown actors but also trying to provide more transparency for the known actors. I can go into that a lot more. There's so much more there, but that was like a huge policy issue that was super fascinating to have to think through. The question of misinformation and disinformation uh, was rampant, uh, still is, uh, on Facebook and, and on other platforms. And it was pretty complicated, I think, by the fact that a good amount of it was coming from the mouth of the president or his spokespeople how do you cope with that? What would you advise your successors or people at other platforms to do in such a difficult test? In full honesty, this is something I'm still trying to to work through. I'm actually with my newsletter that I started and things I'm I'm trying to go through, you know, over the last 18 years and kind of think about this and think about if I could go back to my December 2015 self, what would I have, you know, tried to ask us to to do or have tried to think about this a bit more. The couple of things that I have thought of is one, that we need a much more nuanced solution than just leave it up or take it down because it doesn't address the issues around reach, amplification, engagement, and what does that what does that look like? I did read that when they when Twitter and Facebook took Trump down, that something like 70% decline in misinformation took place almost overnight? Um, I have to go back and look. I don't remember that particular study, but um, given all of the stories and things that are happening now around COVID and many other things, I feel like... There's plenty left. <laughs> there's plenty left. Um, well, and I look at Steve Bannon, actually. So, you know, this has been... I've been a little bit fascinated with this because Steve Bannon got deplatformed as well off of Facebook, Twitter, and, and YouTube. But there was this recent ProPublica story talking about still the massive success of his podcast that is still on platforms like Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple. But then he's also built up a bunch of affiliates and smaller both internet companies and radio stations and TV stations that have been picking him up. And he claims to have 84 million downloads of his podcast. That's him claiming it. Um, but... I think but he probably has a lot. He has a lot. Kind of poisonous. And so just removing him them from the main platforms doesn't mean these problems go away. And I think that I worry that people are like, oh, let's just we kick him off of those. We're we're good and we're done and we can we can move on with our lives. In fact, it might move somebody to a platform that was less responsible. Yes. And you're seeing some of those pop up, right? That um, your parlors, your gabs, your getters, you know, things of that nature. We'll see what lasts and what doesn't last. But um, it, the problem's not going away. That's why I just don't think like, and I just don't think banning or deplatforming this stuff is going to make it go away unless your rules are like, you can only talk about puppies and kittens and unicorns and 
But even that could get politicized because we've seen that get politicized too. I think the other thing too is we do have to think about this as an ecosystem. There's one interesting thing that or data point on this in that President Trump is deplatformed, but his PACs are not. And so they're still running ads. And so what do you think about when you say somebody's deplatformed? What does that mean? Would that extend to the Republican Party? Would it extend to anybody who used Trump's And he's in name? the news every day anyway. Yeah. You know, so then is it, if it's in support of him, you take it down. If it's in, if it's denouncing him, you leave it up. What does that mean for putting your thumb on the scale of political discourse and elections? There's a lot of layers to these, to this onion when you start to really peel it back and think about the potential consequences of these decisions. The people who are most uh, leery of Trump, and I put myself in this category, probably see him as a risk to democracy itself. He likes to follow the model of people who've significantly reduced democratic measures in places like Poland and Hungary and, and so on. And that, you know, things like the January 6th in, insurrection kind of render him different than other political figures and way more dangerous. How do you address something that is so outside of the other norms that you might have to deal with with every other candidate or I guess formerly every other candidate. Now there's a few, quite a few people copying him. And this is, you know, where a lot of, I think the debate really is in that, you know, the deplatforming didn't come and like the line didn't really get crossed until January 6th, where there was that actual incitement to violence and the violence was happening. So there was imminent harm that was happening. And it's always sort of this minority report-esque question of like, at what point in time do you feel like you can make the call before the actual harm happens? Yeah. After the coup is successful. Yeah. And so I think that is what definitely made leadership and, and others, you know, at these companies being willing to, to take him down. But, you know, he's hardly the first world leader to have done that. Um but it is very different that it was happening in the United States. I I think about this is like a bigger thing beyond than just the just the platforms and what they're going to do. It's this tension that I can't quite figure out how to balance around the value of political speech that this country has. And how do you put guardrails around that? How do you, when you have so many different corners for people to go to, um, that it is harder to hold them accountable other than at the ballot box? I mean, if you take things like the Stop the Steal campaign or the anti-vax kind of movement, there are certainly reasonable components of those, right? There are people who are leery of taking vaccines for sensible reasons. There's misinformation and there's lies about them. And there are people even peddling other alternatives for money, but it's not completely harebrained to be concerned about putting an, a chemical that's only recently been tested into your body. You don't want to have a republic where you can't talk about the idea that there could be vote fraud or the challenges shouldn't be reasonable in states, you know, and, and no, there is no process involving human beings, which is perfect, certainly not voting. So, yeah, I mean, those are reasonable, difficult things to talk about among rational people. The problem is that the bulk of those movements are very duplicitous and wrong. So how does a platform which has to automate across a billion comments, how do they choose? Where do you draw a line? It seems awfully, awfully difficult. It's incredibly difficult. And, and, and when you're looking at this, when you have to use a combination of, uh, automatic and, and machines to try to detect some of this, and then even with humans, there's also a question of what level of error are you willing to have? And are you willing to over index on taking down too much stuff out of safety? Or do you dial it the other way. And either way you do that, you're going to have people that are upset with you and, and, and have stuff that gets, you know, you dial it the other way, you get people really upset that their stuff's being taken down and they don't understand. They don't understand why. And so that's what you're seeing. Not only the platforms obviously struggle with, but then people that are not at the platforms and regulators and, and others, you know, just trying to get their heads wrapped around how all of this works to even try to figure out any sort of path forward. 
how are these decisions made from your observation? To what degree is it a mix between sort of civics and a devotion to like a country and freedom of speech and, and the political processes that, that I'm sure as a political professional, you want to uphold and sort of business logic, what's good for the company, what's financially favorable to have maybe more people running ads or more people active on the platform versus other considerations. How would you say that comes down holistically out of Facebook and other platforms? Yeah. And I, it ebbs and flows too, right? In terms of where the circumstances are, you look at the most recent uh, incident where Apple and Google ended up taking down an app from um, an opposition leader up against Putin. You know, they brought, took down Navalny's uh, app in Russia ahead of the Russian elections. I'm putting elections in quotes for those on, on the podcast. And this is not the first time something like this has happened. And so when a request like that comes through, a company is going to be looking at what are the threats of actually being shut down? If the threat of shutdown is high, how do I balance standing up to somebody who's trying to suppress their opposition speech, but perhaps of one or a few people, whereas if we're gone completely, in some countries, these platforms are the only way that the opposition and minority voices have to get any sort of message out. And so are you willing to not have your platform be there and have no minority voices it's kind of the trolley problem, right? But you're willing to shut down the voices of a few so that maybe many can have them. But then I think what was the real differentiator in this Apple and Google case was they have employees in the country and the Russian government said, we will hold your employees criminally. We can prosecute them criminally if you don't take this down. And I think the minute employee safety came on the screen, that shot to the top of the priority stack rank. In terms of what they were doing. So the company can be more or less blackmailed into sabotaging democracy in a place like Russia if they're tough enough on on it. Yeah, which does beg to question and thinking about how you do structure some of your companies where you do have employees or not. You know, India also recently passed a law requiring uh, these companies to have people inside the country that can be grievance officers and stuff like that. And... You know, if you were to flip the the country, let's put Canada in replace of Russia there. And the Canadian government wanted um, in, these companies to have employee representatives because they don't feel comfortable having, you know, U.S.-based companies having such control over their citizens without the Canadian government having some sort of recourse. We're probably not going to be that concerned about it because it's Canada. But depending on the other countries, it can be quite problematic. And so I think it's going to require some of these companies rethinking about how they want to structure where their employees are, maybe even what countries they want to be present in. One of the things that distressed me that I heard, and I don't know how true it is, is that people used Facebook's ad targeting capabilities to let different entities run ads aimed at suppressing the vote in certain audiences. Right. Typically, African-Americans, say, in Wisconsin and in the run up to 2016, it's not unusual in politics to try to demobilize the other side. But there's something uh, there's something that doesn't sit that well with helping automate that process and providing, you know, such knowledge to someone trying to do something like that. And that's not the only example of where you would use targeting capabilities, use the data that's, that is such the lifeblood of Facebook and, and other companies like this to do something that doesn't really feel right. Did you see this happening and what do you make of it and what should be done differently, if anything? I saw the stories on it. I, you know, the Trump campaign denies it, um, of what, whether it was happening or not, there were, there were certainly the stories on it. It was part of the reason we created the ad transparency database afterwards. And they're in there for seven years. So people can try to track this stuff more and have those those conversations. I think, too, a lot of the struggle inside these companies as well is like, who are we to decide what politi- what's okay in political ads or not okay in, in political ads? We tried to take kind of a page from how broadcasters 
you know, they're required to run an ad from a candidate, even if they're saying the sky is green. That's because of the spectrum and, and different things of like there, there's there's reasons they have that and newspapers and others can certainly deny those ads. But um, it's really this, you know, this gut feeling of, that these companies like they don't want to be making these calls. They don't want to be making these content calls. And in the absence of nobody else making them, they're having to, but it's putting them in some really tough positions that they really don't want to be in, which is why I think you see, you know, Facebook creating things like the oversight board to try to at least, you know, have some third party or at least some support in trying to think through what the right decisions are. During your time there, what do you think were the best calls that you guys made with respect to politics and this sort of issue? And what do you think were the worst? That's a really great question and something I've actually have like kind of a blank Google doc. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, how do I want to, how do I want to think about this? So I'll tell you where my thoughts are now. And I, I'd like to reserve the option to adjust these and, and change these as I continue to think about this, but you can um, revise and extend. Yes. Yes. I'd like to revise and we'll, extend. we'll have you back and we'll talk more if you're, if you're willing. <laughs> yeah, no, I think so. One is there's a lot of stuff that we did post 2016 um, that I wish we would have had established in the very beginning. The stuff like the ad transparency, this stuff, like, you know, in terms of the trainings and stuff that we did for politicians, putting a lot of that a lot more up there of like what that was, making those publicly available on websites, just like trying to get that out there a bit more to try to throw more transparency on it. Um, I wish we had thought through sooner and had stress tested sooner what we would do as different powerful figures started to violate our community standards. Some of that was done, but it's a lot easier to do it in theory than it is when you actually go through it in practice. I wish we would have done a bit more, a bit more there. Um, one of the things I think we got right, which might be controversial, but you know, the company put a lot of money and effort and resources into trying to think about these problems, um, more so than pretty much any other tech platform that's out there. Now, is it enough money and is it enough people? I would always like would have liked to had more staff and then would have had more people doing it. But I was always proud that they were at least willing to run headfirst into the problems and be trying to trying to figure some of it out. How big was your team? My direct team at its peak was 60 people, but we had over 500 full-time employees that were working on election stuff across the company. Which is a lot of people to manage and, and uh, pay, but it's also a very small number of people to make such critical decisions and try to implement any kind of policy around it, right? Yes. And these were a lot, a lot of those were more the day to day people. A lot of these things, you know, particularly their tougher questions would get escalated up to, you know, VPs and the C suite for a lot of those things too. So it certainly wasn't like a hands off type of type of process, but there's election always happening around the world because we would start about two years out from any international election. And um, so it takes a lot of time to prepare and plan for these. It probably would take a great philosopher to get a high proportion of these decisions right. Um, you talk about the VPs and the C-suite. How do you think they do? How do, what's, how do you think they did and do on some of these big issues? I think it's mixed. I think it's mixed. I think there's a lot of thoughtfulness that does go that does go into it. But then I think there's also sometimes reluctance to create precedent, reluctance of kind of thinking about what the unintended consequences might be at times that can um, potentially hold it back. So like, I'll give you an example. Um, on the political and issue at transparency, uh, Initially, we thought that we thought every advertiser would be really, really upset with that and that it would be a major blow to our ads business and everything else like that. And so there was a lot, a lot of debate on that. And then we started actually going both due to stuff like the Cambridge Analytica scandal and the Russian ads which helped to, to spur that further um, along. But then also talking to advertisers that, hey, we feel like we need to do this. They actually understood and, and agreed with us. Did you talk directly to Mark Zuckerberg about these issues? Um, from time to time, I was in those in those meetings, but he and I were not like getting together for one-on-one -on -one coffees every week, you know, to share our thoughts and feelings. If there was one thing that you'd have him change now, if you had his ear, what would it be? 
Oh gosh, if we could wave a wand and go back and do, and or do- just even even right now to. Okay, what what should he have done in 2013 and what should he be doing now? Well, we should have never done open graph, which is what uh, the the thing that Cambridge Analytica, um, how Kogan got that got that data and, and stuff like that. Um, I think that was, I would go back and not do that. I understand the desire and the need to continue to innovate and think about things like the metaverse and AR, VR and all of those things. And I think that the company should absolutely always have one eye on innovation. But we can't ignore these issues that we still need to figure out that are being debated in Congress and capitals all around the world of what is happening. And I think need to find the right balance uh, between doing both of those and really trying to hear the concerns that that folks have in order to have a you know a constructive debate about the right path forward. Facebook has a lot of control over sort of the velocity of information and what gets shared. To what extent do they use those tools to affect our politics in a partisan direction or in a direction that's pro or con with respect to mis and disinformation? There's a bunch of different angles there. It's never been done to purposely like try to push one partisan side or or the other. Uh, there's been you know reports around uh, changes to newsfeed back in 2018 to something called meaningful social interactions. There was a period of time there that that was also around reducing the amount of political content in feed because. People we were hearing also after 16 that people didn't want to see that. And now you're hearing that again, that that Mark and them have announced that they want to try to reduce the amount of political content in feed. And so they're looking to to try to do some of that. On mis and disinformation there, there's the whole fact-checking program where if something is marked as false, it may not be removed from the site, but it's severely demoted. A label is put on it, things of that nature that they have. So there's a bunch of different levers that they may uh, pull when it comes to the feed. Do, do you think that's working fairly well? I think the jury's still out. I think it's really hard to kind of get the the head wrapped around that. And I think, you know, the Wall Street Journal story with the Facebook files showed some of I, I think the changes were all done in good intentions, but then it actually starts to, you're like, oh no, we've actually made people angrier or, you know, they're engaging more in this way or that way. And we didn't intend for that to happen. Okay. So how do we continue to to tweak that? And I think one of the challenges with a tech world that likes to do that sort of iterating on these types of things, that is really hard to do and try to convince people that that's okay to do when they're seeing democracy and speech and all these other things, the impacts that it's having on those. I know you have a, a longtime interest in journalism and in media organizations and the health of that sector of our economy. And so much has changed over your career in terms of how people get their news. And Facebook and other platforms is a main place where people get them. And they're the intermediary often between an article and the reader. And they have a lot of influence, therefore, over the revenue streams to the publishers. Do you think that that is an area that needs reform? I do. And I think it needs reform in a couple of different ways, or at least different areas that need to be looked at. One, I think a lot about the fact that, you know, when you first join a place like Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, you initially make a choice, right? I want to be friends with these people. I want to follow these accounts. But then the the companies take over and then they're like, okay, of these things you chose, I'm going to use an algorithm to show you of those things. I think you most want to see these. Oh, and because of that, I'm also going to choose to recommend you stuff that I think you're going to like based off of that. Now, if you only let it be what people choose, then you've got kind of the filter bubble problem a little bit. But then depending upon what you recommend to people, there's a lot of studies, right? Showing you can send people down into unfortunate rabbit holes. And they can be radicalized increasingly because they keep following more and more alarming content. But then and on the other hand, people don't necessarily, if you're a Democrat, you don't necessarily want to have Ben Shapiro thrown into your feed. And if you're a Republican, you probably don't want Rachel Maddow thrown into your feed. And who is a company like Facebook to make the decision of like, hey, I think you should see this. And where do you set the line about 
is Rachel or Ben too far out for us to be putting that in front of people. Yeah, drawing those lines is drawing lines is so hard and is something all the companies try to avoid with a 10-foot pole because there is absolutely no winning in doing that. Again, this kind of goes back to that optimistic phase of the early internet where everyone was just so excited to be getting traffic and clicks and and everything like that like, you know, it took a long time for paywalls to become a normal thing on on these sites and trying to think about how others can can monetize it. I think watching very carefully what's happening in a place like Australia and how that works around rethinking uh, the news industry. For those who aren't familiar, um, Australia passed a law that requires uh, these platforms to negotiate with the news organizations there in terms of some of the revenue. And now in an interesting twist, a court there has decided that any page owner um, is responsible for the comments that are on that Facebook page. And so CNN has decided to pull its pages from Australia because it does not want to have to be liable for what people are saying in their comment sections. Because the comments sections of almost everything are awful. Correct. Sludgy. Yes. Yeah. I kind of feel like some days I'm like, let's just get rid of the comment section maybe because I don't, I don't see any good that ever comes from them. And some of them are automated too and, and you know, not even humans. So stepping back from all these details, which are so important and and real, when we look at our country, we are more polarized. We are more radicalized. We are politically more at odds than we have been in a long time. And there's just no question that the platforms are part of the problem. It clearly exacerbates any trend that's going on with the algorithms and and with just the way people intentionally use them to sell greater fear or or whatever they're selling with some distance from your job your former job what, what can we do as a country to try to take us in the right direction you're asking me all the hard questions and want all the answers today <laughs> um no well, you're, I, you're a person who thought about it as much as anybody on the planet you know, one can't off the top of their head do as well as you will do in the written 30 page piece that you put out later. Yeah. Um, well, it might be a book. We'll see. Um, we, I think that first we need to be able to have a way to, to really have honest conversations about these trade-offs and, and things that both the companies and, civil societies and governments are, are going through when thinking about these things. And it's something that I'm trying to bring more awareness to because I'm really glad we're having these conversations out in the public. We need to be having these strong debates around norms and, and everything else like that. I think we need to both be looking at, are there radical changes that do you need to happen to your Facebooks, your Instagrams, your Twitters? But then, you know, TikTok just hit a billion users and TikTok's a Chinese owned company. And so what, how do we start catching this stuff sooner? I would like to see some more guardrails put into place for startups in terms of, you know, I say this as a Republican who wants to make sure that we have innovation and, and all that. And I want to make sure we have that. But we let these things get so big before we even, you know, you, you were saying at the beginning I, when I said I joined Facebook for a billion, you're like, yeah, that's still big. Yeah, but you don't hear TikTok in the news a whole heck of a lot in their algorithm and questions. And there's some. They're already in the middle of politics. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so we need to find a way to... I don't know if it's through requirements, like through regulation or something like that, but we've got to start building integrity into these systems a heck of a lot sooner than what we have been. Although some people are building them with the explicit purpose of championing one side, even if that side is full of duplicity and, and misinformation. And that's a real question that I think goes back to, you know, the very founding of the Republic, Right. I've been thinking about it a lot. I don't have any grand answers uh, just yet in terms of what that is going to look like, but I do agree with you. As you're responding, I'm both kind of impatient with the, we need to have rational discussion about this when it feels like the Republic is burning down and really changed dramatically to something quite noxious and an understanding that it is hard and there isn't a 
simple way to fix it. I also think we don't have a common definition of what success looks like. What is what is a healthy democracy? That's something I keep coming back to, too, of trying to define that. And what does that actually look like? When you look at the movements to enable state legislatures to overturn the popular electoral vote or to cut down on the number of people eligible to vote or the ways in which they can vote to restrict voting and the lies that Trump is still telling about the election and, and which he's going to use to run on. Does that feel to you like normal politics or does that feel to you like a bigger threat? So there's a mix in there, but I, I do think it's somewhat a, a somewhat a bigger threat. We can get into the details of, of the voting bills, you know, in there in, in terms of what that balance of, you know, trying to make it really easy for people to vote. I wrote to somebody today, I said the words, but also protecting the integrity of elections. But even that word has gotten weaponized that it doesn't mean what it once did. There is nothing that prevents other than private because the government can't do anything. And so private entities potentially need to be the ones that make those decisions. But I also worry, too, you know, we we mentioned earlier on today it's President Trump. But there are times where elections legitimately need to be recounted, where there are questions of things that need to happen. And I don't want to shut that down either. Both sides can get upset by a result, but there's something different about Trump. I think, too, how complicated our electoral system is does not help. It doesn't help that you don't have a central uh, you know, election regulator and intent, instead it's out across 8,000 different ones. Well, there's some aspect of that that protects us, right? Correct. Because Correct. You, can't, you can't hack them all the same way. You can't fix it in one place. No, you can't fix it in one spot. But then at the same time, too, people hear of something happening in North Carolina and they assume it's happening in Wisconsin or, or Arizona. But then you also have, too, just the length of time that it takes to actually certify the vote um, because, you know, you have that initial one. But then, you know, the Electoral College and everything else like that, that gives a longer period of time for for people to to be questioning the results. I even wonder, I threw this idea out to somebody, but I'm like, do we need to stop showing the election results as it comes in? And instead, I kind of feel that way. Why do we need a partial count? It's a, what possible use is that uh, to anybody except speculators? Why not wait till the count is done and then report it? Yeah, because that's how it's done in a lot of other countries. And I have to tell yeah. you, it's a lot more anticlimactic um, yeah. when that is good entertainment. Yeah. But I mean, I, I like the I like election nights, especially good ones. Uh, but but I I'm not sure we're served as a country by them. Yeah. And so I think that, again, you know, we we absolutely have to think about all the online aspects to this, too. We have to think about the media ecosystem as a whole. But then I also think, you know, the elements of voting. But then there is also that post-election period that usually most people ignored. And I think 2020 was the first time a lot of people, you know, if you weren't a political junkie, were really learning about all of that. And that may be something that needs to be looked at as well. Why did you leave Facebook after a decade and tell me about some of the many things that you've now started doing. So I had always sort of had this time in my head as a potential time to try a new chapter. It was my 10 years at the company. I turned 40 in November of last year, and it was going to be after the 2020 election. And so it was three major milestones in my, my life I wasn't able to do as much of the work that I wanted to inside the company that I wanted that I wanted to do. And so it felt like time to to leave, which I did in March of 2021. And I spent a lot of COVID in 2020 thinking about what should that be. And I knew I wanted to stay at the intersection of tech and democracy. And I have three pillars that I'm trying to build work around. One is mentorship, working with folks in colleges and, and stuff like that, the next generation who's going to be having to think about these problems. The second was building up my own brand and voice and thought leadership on these issues because my entire career I've spoken on behalf of a candidate or a corporation and I wanted to be like, this is what Katie Harbath thinks on these things. But then the third one is I don't want to just talk about these things. I want to help build them. 
I want to help build these solutions. And so I created an LLC called Anchor Change. I liked that name because I liked the grounding that it had in terms of sort of solid foundation, but also the need for helping to bring change into the world around these issues and, and frankly, trying to anchor those as, as new norms around things. And so... Um, I've been doing a series of, of different projects. I'm a fellow at the Bipartisan Policy Center where we're looking at how we can better improve getting people information online about where, when, and how to vote. And then I'm really excited about I'm, and been obsessed around the year 2024 because we're not only going to have a U.S. presidential election, but elections in India, Indonesia, Ukraine, Taiwan, Mexico, the United Kingdom, and the European Parliament all in the same year. And that's never happened before. And I don't think anybody's ready. I don't think companies are ready. I don't think governments are ready. I don't think civil society is ready. And it takes years to be able to build up the capacities to handle that much stuff, um, not just in an election time, but it's also going to be a huge geopolitical moment. And so I'm trying to raise awareness to that fact now that this electoral tsunami is coming our way and trying to work with some of the international groups and stuff that I had partnered with when I was at Facebook to try to see if we can start figuring out ways to help people build resilience um, between now and then, and then also start to execute on those things in 2023 and 2024. In what ways are we not ready? I mean, we just ran a presidential election. Yes, there's multiple in other countries. That's In some ways, that's their problem. Are you talking about hacking cybersecurity? Are you talking about foreign interference? All of the above. Domestic interference, internal preparation. You know, I mentioned those 500 people we had at Facebook that that worked on, you know, elections related stuff. And in 2019, we had all of those similar types of elections I mentioned, India, Indonesia, EU, Australia, etc., all happening in 2019. And the 2020 election was just getting started. And we barely had... I mean, our people were going... like it was. They were working nonstop for those elections. And then they rolled over into the US. And so to have the language capabilities, to have the processes for making decisions, for having the products ready you know, from, a, from a, a company perspective. But then you look at a governmental perspective, Freedom House and Freedom on the Net that came out last week showed that 48 countries are considering legislation around tech companies. And unfortunately, a large majority of those are weaponizing that legislation to actually suppress free speech. And so we really haven't grappled with the question around deplatforming in politicians and, and world leaders. And then I also think we need a framework for how do we as a whole society think about we're gonna, how we're going to deal with the unknowns, the problems we can't anticipate that are going to come up. And then on top of all that, with the ones we do, we just know foreign actors are going to get more sophisticated. Um, domestic actors are going to get more sophisticated. And so there's never a finish line on this stuff. Um, it, it just keeps evolving. When you look around at the people who are at that same intersection that you are placing yourself in, uh, tech and democracy, who do you think is doing really good work that you look to uh, in that space? Yeah, I'm a huge fan of the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensics Research Lab. Um, I've worked with them for, for many years, but they are the fastest moving think tank I've seen on this stuff and really looking at both foreign and domestic interference on these things and, and how to solve them. I'm curious to see where the companies go in terms of their continued investment in international elections. I write about that today in my newsletter um, about sort of the rest of the world and, and how to think about those things um, that I'm looking towards. And then, you know, there's NDIs, your IRIs, um, there's IFAS, which is the collection of electoral um, observers and stuff like that. All are really starting to, you know, have always done great work and are, and are doing more um, that I think we need to keep focusing on and trying to think about how we continue to bridge that with the work that tech companies and others are doing. You mentioned your newsletter. I've been subscribing. You're only a few issues in, but um, glad to have a chance to read it. Why did you start that and what is it going to cover over time? I mentioned that building up my own brand and, and voice and I felt that I needed a outlet to do that in that was not just 
whatever the 200 some odd characters that it is on Twitter these days. So I do a lot of tweeting as well. I also wanted a place for me to start to share my journey of rethinking my assumptions and sharing more context in terms of how some of these things may work at these companies, the trade-offs that people are doing, but the journey that you know we've gone through of rethinking some of this stuff, what worked, what didn't. And I wanted a venue in which I could share that in. It's like blogging, essentially. It's like there's a chance to, to express yourself nowadays without anybody else getting in the way, which is kind of nice. Is there a question that I didn't ask you that you would like to answer? No, I just like to plug that if people want to subscribe to the newsletter, they can go to anchorchange.substack.com. But other than that, no. Katie, it's an honor to talk to you today. Um, appreciate you coming on. Anything else you want to say? No, I've just, I've really enjoyed this. This, one, this was a great interview. So thank you. I appreciate that. That was Katie Harbath, formerly of Facebook. Katie is now at anchorchange.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.